Science and Fiction, where we delve into the possible and impossible. I'm your co-host, Scott Shukin. I'm a comic book expert, podcaster, sound engineer, and all-around geek. I'm Steven Shukin. I'm a PhD student in chemistry at Stanford, a self-identified nerd, and I'm Scott's twin brother. Once again, welcome to Science and Fiction. Here's how it works. I will present Steven with some crazy sci-fi concept and explain where it comes from, and then he's going to help us determine if it's at all possible, and if not, how we might fix it to make it possible. Then I present Scott with a scientific fact, explain it a little bit, and then we come up with a way to extrapolate that science into something fit for bona fide sci-fi. Neither of us has heard what the other is bringing to the show, so our responses are totally improvised. Now let's delve into the possible and impossible. And now here we are with our third consecutive episode about the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. This is the one I've been the most excited to get to. Yeah. The Dark Knight Rises, because it's it's the one that's that's just a mess. Suns just... rise. Knights don't even rise. Sorry. Let's sorry. No, you're right. They don't. You don't, you don't I know why you're apologizing, because you're absolutely <laughs> right about that. Yeah. Um, there is, there's a really classic, there's probably the most classic Batman book. It's called The Dark Knight Returns. Mm-hmm. And, now that's and, that's the thing knights do. They do return very frequently. Yeah, and so this there's a lot of this movie that's inspired by the Dark Knight Returns. There's a lot of it that's also more of it that's inspired by a story called No Man's Land. We're not going to get into that too much. Mm-hmm. But the TDKR is clearly what they were aiming for. Am but I honest, dumb, or did you not explain what TDKR is? The Dark Knight Rises. They oh, were yeah. going for the same yeah, initials dumb. as the classic Batman. Great. It's all right. It's all right. We're gonna. I'm. I'm gonna be plenty dumb for for you know as we get into the, <laughs> for science. the science. Yeah. Okay. Nobody will be. Nobody will be unclear about who knows what about Batman and who knows what about <laughs> things that matter. Okay. So the Dark Knight Rises is the third of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies with Christian Bale as Batman. This is the one with Anne Hathaway as Catwoman and Tom Hardy as Bane and Marion Cotillard. I think I'm pronouncing that right. As I forget the name. Miranda Tate, that's the good name they give her, but she's, mm. spoiler alert, Talia al Ghul, the daughter of Liam Neeson's character from Batman Begins. You know, I, I have to admit, I haven't seen this movie. I don't know whether to be ashamed or not. Don't be. Don't, it's. I haven't seen this in a long time, and I was wondering if maybe when I saw it again, I wouldn't be as critical about it, and it's it's as bad as I remember. Okay. I it's have seen the, the Pete Holmes Badman spoof on uh <laughs> college humor which is very funny it has it has very little in common with the movie okay <laughs> uh you can go ahead and watch that but uh parental advisory on uh on that Pete yeah, Holmes video definitely so anyway i remember when i first watched this movie i took uh i took two years of physics in high school mm-hmm. so i know a little bit about a little bit oh excuse excuse any cat chirps you might have just heard <laughs> Copper Copper cares about Batman. Copper actually loves watching Batman. We think Is it's that the true? ears. Yeah, especially the Batman video no, games. No, you do not think it's the ears. You think that Copper actually like thinks it's a cat-like thing? Well, it's particularly the Batman video games where the whole time the camera's behind Batman. There are these just little bat ears sticking up right dead center in the screen the whole time. I think it's I think it's the villains. I think that she's inspired. She? He? Oh, he. I should know that. He is- Whatever, uh, in- it's a cat. It's a whoa! <laughs> this is 
after I disparaged your cat's uh, morals, here you are not even acknowledging its gender. Actually, I guess we don't know what, what copper identifies as. Yeah, that's I don't, I don't, I, morals are way more important to me. Cats aren't going to be offended per se, but I am offended by you judging my cat. Yeah, but like if your cat had, if your cat had a kitty blood boy, which is what I'm referring to, episode one, I think, uh, it would at least be cool and would also be Batman uh, villain-like, which is what I'm getting at. It would be Batman villain-esque. Okay. It would be very much unlike the Batman villain Catman, though. I'm not going to get into that. Don't worry okay, about that. Okay, great. So anyway, I remember watching this when it first came out and... The big thing that we're going to talk about when it comes to this movie is radioactive decay. Hmm. Because the big the big thing that that is is the obvious red flag is the specificity with which radioactive decay occurs and the countdown to an explosion that will occur at the end of the movie. So let's let's get into it. Let's see what they say about the movie. So there's this Free clean energy fusion project, the kind that very often go wrong in mm. sci-fi movies. Doc Ock? Yeah, exactly. Once mm-hmm. again, here we are talking about Doc <laughs> talking Ock. About, it always comes back to Doc Ock always for us. It always comes back to, to Otto Octavius. Uh-huh. Or Olivia Octavius, if you've loved, seen loved Into that the Spider-Verse, movie. Yeah. which could be my favorite movie we've ever seen. Okay. Now that I've seen it, blew me away. So Not, clean, clean fusion. Yeah, so clean fusion... Uh, they don't really say exactly what it is other than it's a fusion reactor. Mm-hmm. They, they're very vague about that. But there is uh, one scientist, Dr. Pavel is his name, who is able to turn it into a four megaton bomb. He's able to turn clean fusion into a megaton bomb? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, he says that he turned it into a four megaton bomb or megaton bomb. Hmm. So this is a project that Wayne Enterprises has been working on. Bruce Wayne has been working with a woman named Miranda Tate. And they basically have the project, but Bruce Wayne was like, nah, we can't do it because it can be turned into a bomb. It's too dangerous. Right. And so we can't, we can't release this project because we can't, it can't be trusted out in the world. Mm. So as the villain plot occurs and Bane, who uh, is played by Tom Hardy, the big bad guy, basically comes and takes over Gotham – because all of the all of the cops in Gotham run into the sewers to take down some bad guys and they collapse a few bridges and then there are just no cops in Gotham. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. Convenient. Ooh. Yeah. Um, there's like three that are left. And of course, they're, you know, the main characters. And ah. that's a whole thing. But yeah. uh, we'll not get too much into the whole cop plot that one of them turns out to be Robin, but not Robin. And it makes me super <laughs> angry. And, and I don't need to relive that rage. Great. So Bane takes over Gotham, and he goes and he has his guy pull the core out of the reactor. Wait, how, how does Bane take over Gotham? He ha- he releases a bunch of prisoners from the local prison, Blackgate Prison. He also just has a bunch of mercenaries. He's a mercenary himself. Uh huh. Um, so he he in the very opening scene, he kidnaps this Doctor Pavel, takes him to Gotham, takes over Gotham, has Pavel turn the fusion project into a four megaton bomb, pulls the core out of the reactor, which begins the decay. Okay, so someone and, was like, we shouldn't do this, but then they just did it anyway. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is this is villain idea, we're going to create a bomb. Of course. The doctor says it's going to decay in a matter of months. Bane says he calculates five months, and then it's going to go off. And then he just kills the scientist, because apparently he's done, and we couldn't use an <laughs> expert going forward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Or in the writing of the script. 
So when Bane, he's he hasn't fully taken over Gotham at this point. First he gets the bomb, then he like destroys a football field. I have no idea how he makes the football field just collapse on itself, but it happens. Cool. And he says to the people of Gotham, hey, I've got this bomb. It's a fully primed neutron bomb with a radius of six miles. It's one of the few details we get about it, that it's a neutron bomb and it has a six mile radius. A neutron bomb. Is that a thing? Neutron bombs are a thing, but the irony is that a neutron bomb is designed so that the neutrons that are released as a result of the blast escape the bomb more readily compared to other designs of hydrogen bombs, which sort of brings me to my initial critique of this is that turning a reactor into a bomb is not easy because reactors are designed for the chemical reaction to be contained and for the energy produced in the reaction to be converted into usable electricity, whereas a bomb is designed to explode and for all that energy to be just released. And in a neutron bomb, this is especially true. A neutron bomb is a specific design of hydrogen bomb where the neutrons are supposed to escape. One of the conceits at the beginning of the movie is that this Dr. Pavel is like the only guy in the world that can do this yeah. besides one of Wayne's scientists. Yeah, that's the other critique, which is, no, this the nuclear chemistry of fusion is well known. And so aside from that nuclear chemistry, there's, you know, well-known engineering and design. But the idea that only one person would be able to make a fusion reactor and also therefore a neutron bomb is is not true. So you're saying... You're saying that it's very difficult to do, but also that a lot of people could do it? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, fully primed neutron bomb, six mile radius, I don't know about that. I don't know what that means as far as radiation versus explosive power. Yeah, well, that's kind of what the neutron bomb is all about, is that the damage that's caused by a neutron bomb mostly comes from neutron radiation coming out. So, neutrons escaping and causing damage as opposed to a fiery blast. Okay. Okay, so when this happens, there's a countdown timer on the bomb, and it reads 3, 14, 22, 57, 34, mm. which potentially means three months, 14 days, 22 hours, 57 minutes, and 34 seconds. Also, they could have made it pie. You know, that would have been fun. <laughs> You're, right, You're already 3, 14. Yeah. But anyway, that's the specificity with which this countdown is occurring. Yeah, that's interesting. Can you can you say the numbers one more time and what you're saying they correspond to? All right, and there's there's a, you know there's like a colon between all of them, so it's right. like a countdown timer, right? Yeah. Three, fourteen, twenty-two, fifty-seven, thirty-four. Okay. And so the implication to me at least seems as though it's saying three months, fourteen days, twenty-two hours, fifty-seven minutes. And 34 seconds. Oh, okay. So, three months out, they're saying they know to the second that this decay will cause an explosion. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, the, the decay causing the explosion is a silly thing, because bombs just have detonators. They have things that destabilize the weapon so that the nuclear reaction can commence, and so you could just have a computer that's counting down that precisely three months in advance and is ready to detonate that second. You know, it's, it's not... And there is a detonator in the movie that Bane has, uh -huh. but they do say that as the fuel cells deteriorate, it will become increasingly unstable to the point of detonation. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, this is a theme like the conflation between meltdown of a reactor and explosion as a bomb. I think it, it people, because meltdowns have happened in the past with nuclear reactors... 
people might conflate a, a nuclear meltdown with uh, an explosion. Bombs are hard to make. It's it's hard to cause and control a an explosion um, like that. So I, I'm curious though. Yeah, do I think um, do I think a a meltdown of a of a nuclear reactor could be predicted? I'm not sure. This is and this is why I want to bring up because this is what I know about physics is about half lifes. Is because right. I remember when they brought up the term half life in physics, I paid attention because I really like that video game. Right. And and that was one of the things is that it's it's sort of a general thing, right? If a half life is three months, that means half of the cells will decay in three months. Yeah. But they don't it's not like they know then that a quarter will decay in a month and a half. It's not quite like that. Uh, yeah. So, so that's not exactly quite right. That that it's not that the reactors that half of them will decay. It's that half of the atoms in a sample will have decayed. Right. How, how is that necessarily different than? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't the sample in this case be the atoms in the reactor? Yeah. So what I'm saying is that all the reactors would be decaying at the same rate. It's not like half of them would blink out or half of the reactors would have blinked out if you had multiple reactors. Okay. I see. So, but either way, if the decay is happening over such a long time that you're pulling it out and it takes five months for detonation to go off, doesn't mean, doesn't that mean that it becomes much harder to predict? It's an interesting question because I think it's possible that these half-lives are known to that level of precision. That's not what I take issue with as much. It's more the idea that decay is going to eventually result in an explosion because in a neutron bomb, it's a kind of hydrogen bomb. And actually, shout out to Josh, one of our listeners, who sent me some feedback. He corrected something that I said in episode one, which is that two hydrogen atoms come together to make a helium atom. It's actually four hydrogen atoms. So if you imagine uh, two hydrogen atoms coming together to make what's called a deuterium, which is an isotope of hydrogen or just a version of hydrogen. So two hydrogens come together to make a different version of hydrogen. And then those encounter another hydrogen to make helium. So it's two steps to make the helium. And then finally, two heliums that are made by that process collide to make another helium. So it's one, two, three collisions. And none of those steps are decay. Um, You who might be listening, who kind of know the constituents of those atoms know that in the process some protons and positrons are released to balance that equation but those releases are just results of collision okay so the whole the fuel cells deteriorate and it becomes increasingly unstable sounds scary but doesn't make sense yeah i mean in general with chemistry if processes are happening and things are deteriorating and and um disorder is increasing if you will then the system is getting more relaxed, basically. The system is almost always having less of a propensity to explode, if that makes sense. So when Bain first pulls it out of the reactor, that's actually the most dangerous the bomb is. Yes, exactly. So after five months, it wouldn't even necessarily be a nuke anymore. Yeah, it would probably be, you know, cold, quote unquote. So so they just, they just wait, they could have just waited it out when... It shouldn't have exploded at the end. Yeah, yeah, they're like, yeah, so it's actually fine. In <laughs> three months, it's not going to be much of a big deal. <laughs> Which, okay, that's that's hilarious. Because then the, the only other thing at the end with the rest of the bomb is that there is there is a, a trigger mecha- mechanism that <laughs> Morgan Freeman's character, Lucius Fox, stops with an EMP cannon. 
and uh, EMPs. That's a whole that's a whole thing to discuss. I forget yeah, EMP. Probably, what, what's EMP? Electromagnetic pulse. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Makes yeah. everything turn off. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just interesting that like basically Bane just has a like he could just have a nuclear bomb. You know, he could if he has a scientist that can make. Well, did the scientist make the reactor as well? Like no. the energy stuff? No. The initial project was Wayne Enterprises. Okay. And so with Miranda Tate, who by the way turned out to be evil. Right. And then and then Bane has this guy who's able to take that reactor and turn it into the bomb, is that right? Yes. Okay. So if he has a guy who can take a reactor and turn it into the bomb and if there are no cops to like stop the trade of illegal materials, then this guy they're can all just the sewers. Yeah, and and so Bane can, they're all in the sewers. Bane could just have this guy make a neutron bomb. But then that's no fun. I mean, it might have been more fun. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to think, like, how, how we can make, like, an exciting, you know, kind of privileged... Because that's the whole idea here is, like, what would you have to be really smart to make? That's that's the biggest problem with all this, really, is, like, you could have a time detonator. You could have a really smart um, guy come up with a, a really bad weapon. <laughs> the, the problem is that, like... In the, you know, in the 20th century, humans came up with the worst wet weapon you could ever think of. Yeah, like he already has the nuke of the detonator and he, and he could have just, like you said in the very beginning, set a timer. He just overcomplicates it. And the, the, the whole plot is something about how he wants to give Gotham back to the people. Um, <laughs> by exploding but, it. Yeah, by, you know, and so they they grab all of the rich people out of their apartments and throw them on the street and just basically let anarchy reign in Gotham and... And and the and the reason why Batman can't be there to stop it is the other big thing that we're going to talk about from this episode. And this is this is more in the medical field, but I think it's going to be fun to talk about. Can I ask you a question before we delve into that? Yeah. What do you think about doomsday devices? The thing that I just said really made me think, which is since nukes since nukes are already uh is that an appropriate place to use the word MacGuffin? Absolutely. Since nukes are a great MacGuffin for the end of the world. What what creative solutions have you read for like a doomsday device that's scarier even than a nuke? The the scarier thing is often the idea of something that that instead of ending the world changes it horrifically. Right. Right. So something like like a zombie apocalypse per se. Ah, uh, yeah. That even if you do survive, it might be worth it might be worse than dying. Huh. Than your the new world that you have to live in. That makes sense. Um, there's or, also or, I was just sorry to interrupt you, but I was just thinking of Infinity War, how like you, not just a bomb that's big enough to explode a continent or a, a city, but uh, a glove that if, you know, you know, you click your fingers and like half of the universe dies. That's more right. dramatic. And, and that's and that's similar in that it's it's about who wields it is the real thing. Right. And and the Infinity Gauntlet didn't quite come up in Infinity War because it was just all Thanos' plan the whole time. Hmm. But it has this this romance to it, like almost like finding the seven Dragon Balls, that you can right, be the universe's yes. greatest hero if you do it. What is it about collecting those seven things? It's so fun to to read stories like that and watch stories like that. Yeah, I mean the 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 collectathon makes for a great it's it's a great MacGuffin for a quest. Right. Right, you got to go to a bunch of locations, and we see this. We see this in video games. We see this, particularly in serialized storytelling. Yeah, MacGuffin, by the way, just means plot device. Yes, yes. All right, let's uh, let's do the next thing you were gonna say. Yeah. So, so the next thing that that is that is interesting is that Batman is wrecked in this movie. Okay. <laughs> so it has been. 
eight years since he has been Batman, since the end of The Dark Knight. Oh, wow. Yeah, which, by the way... He quits being Batman at the end of The Dark Knight? Yeah, th- this whole franchise, he's just trying to not be Batman the whole damn time. <laughs> yeah, who, who is he? Uh, the Hulk? Bruce Banner? Yeah, basically. Yeah. He's Bruce Banner, but like without without a part of him forcing its way out. See what I've he's learned? Bruce Banner, with the, he's got the ability to say no. Yeah, right. Did you say something? Yeah, I said, see what I've learned? Oh, yeah. Yeah, see? Look at you. Yeah. So, in this whole franchise, Batman is like Batman for like an hour and a half. Anyway, Bruce is, he goes to the doctor and he is told he has no cartilage in his knee, not much cartilage in his elbows and shoulders, and that between that and the scar issue on his kidneys, residual concussive damage to his brain tissue, and the general scarred over quality of his body, his doctor does not recommend that he does any extreme sports. What? Okay. So the, the recommendation is more of a joke. Yeah, right, right. That's that's the condition of his body in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, that's right. right. Don't do any extreme sports. Sounds um, like he I shouldn't forget. be walking. Yeah, he, absolutely. He walks with like a cane in the beginning. He's like limping with a cane when Catwoman steals his mother's pearls. So he's um, just been like this for thing. seven years. He's had no cartilage. Yeah, that <laughs> seems to be the impression. All right. So they put like a brace thing on his knee and he's like, oh, a brand new knee. And he's <laughs> great again. Um, this, I, I mean, does does Batman actually have um, superpowers or is it all tech? It's all it's all gadgets and hmm. determination. Interesting. Training. Yeah, yeah I'd be curious the, to talk to some medical folks about whether be, doing the kind of activities Batman does would actually, you know, damage your cartilage that much. I'm sure, I mean, given given how much abuse Batman takes over the last literally 80 years of publication, yeah. <laughs> I imagine he's that's pretty an old, wrecked. That's an old Batman. Yeah, he's an old Batman. So, in the movie, one of the, one of the classic, the classic thing that Bane from the comics did mm-hmm. was that he is the man who broke Batman's back. Yeah, right. Bat. You've told me about he, this. He picks him up and he smashes him over his knee. And he breaks Batman's back, and it's a whole thing. And in this movie, that happens. Oh, cool. In this movie, Batman, Bane does the thing where he picks Batman up, and he crushes him over his knee. Cool. And uh, I really think that for the grand moment that it is, it's a little rushed, the okay. way that it works out. It's like a little anticlimactic. It kind of yeah. like bounces off the knee, and you're is like, it like, that was the big moment? Is it like a full page in the comic? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the most classic pages, just this giant... And in the comic, Bane... The thing about Bane is that in the comics, he's already this huge, giant, like, luchador wrestling guy. <laughs> cool. Which made Tom Hardy pretty interesting casting. Okay. Um, and the thing is, he has this drug called Venom that's like a super steroid that turns him from one super giant guy to an impossibly superhuman giant guy. Wow. And that's the man who breaks Batman's back. So, what they do in the movie is, instead, he's a really big guy with some past injuries and a mask that gives him some painkillers to deal with his past injuries. <laughs> played by Tom That's Hardy. Played by Tom Hardy. <laughs> I, I, don't even know, I don't even know where they were coming from when they were like, what if instead of making him strong and he gets stronger, we make him broken and that's it. <laughs> Wait, I thought you were saying that the doctor says that uh, Batman has no cartilage. Tom Hardy also has, has health issues? Yeah, he also has health issues from being raised in this terrible prison. 
So it's just it's just thing. two decrepit old men <laughs> breaking yes. each other's backs. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> that is exactly what it is. While Anne Hathaway and Marion Cotillard fight over which one of them gets to bang Batman. Well, I do love Spoiler Anne Hathaway. Spoiler alert, it's both. <laughs> <laughs> do we have so, to bleep bang? I don't think so. I no, think that's no, good. No. So... Batman's back is broken, and he is left in the prison where Bane grew up, which is literally a hole in the ground, in liter- and they never tell us where in the world. Okay. I don't know. I don't know where. Mm-hmm. What they do is they, they make, like, a rope, like, almost like a noose, basically a lasso, like this big loop hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. And they put him in it, like, they put his, like, shoulders in it, like he's floating, like... Okay. Like on a pool. Got and it. And they hang him from there, and they tell him to stay there. And that's how they fix his back. <laughs> wow. In, in, in like two and a half months, he's strong enough to climb out of this super giant pit that only one person has ever climbed out of before. No way. And, yeah, yeah. And then he and then with no explanation, he makes his way back to Gotham, paints a giant fire bat on the bridge. Cool. And, so cool. And then wins the day. Fire bat the, on the bridge. I'm back. The, the the significant amount of, like, they tell us so much about how much, like, there's literally vertebra spit sticking out of his back that has to be smacked back in. Yeesh. And then he's just fine. He's, I'm, I'm chill. I'm so, going to go, yeah, go save I Gotham let one your, more time. I kind of let your description of the rope thing slide because I, I figured it wouldn't be that important. But now I'm very that's, curious. That's the main thing, basically, yeah. So what do you mean? So it's a single loop of rope that's hanging down? Yeah, it essentially, yeah, it's hanging over a pipe, right? So they can lift it up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they just basically tie a rope around his like torso under his armpits Jeez. and lift him by it. That is so stupid. Couldn't there have been a cool like, you know, I mean, in the first movie, he like trained with a with a, you know, with a like like a ninja basically in the mountains. That was cool. But him just hanging by a rope and magically growing his cartilage back doesn't doesn't really do it for me. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's not. There's there's a, a real lack of, of badass Batman moments in this movie. Yeah, wow. I mean, I don't even need to consult my medical, uh, you know, people to tell you that that's, I mean, complete garbage. Like, there's no way that having no, uh, you your muscles would atrophy rather than grow. Um, I don't know about your cartilage. Maybe it would grow. I don't know if cartilage really grows back or how fast, but eh, I might as well look that up. Does cartilage grow back once we're adults our cartilage cannot grow or heal because it doesn't have any blood vessels which means oxygenated red blood cells can't develop. no looks like it doesn't really grow back in adulthood at least of course it has to grow in in development and maybe has some regeneration in in youth but uh nope yeah so that's that's the third that's the (laughs) grand culmination of christopher nolan's batman is he breaks batman and then just sort of hangs him out to dry until he's better again so <laughs> and then, and then, and this is the part that what a movie. is not necessarily what a movie. something to ask you about, but you just got to hear this part. Yeah. At the end, he fakes his own death and runs away with his new girlfriend to Paris. Oh, uh, again, Batman. Yeah. That's literally you gotta how stop the movie quitting. ends. The whole thing about Batman is that he can't stop. He, 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 you know, or not that he can't stop, but that he like, you know, he feels an attachment to the duty of being Batman. Isn't that right? right? Yeah. There's something about justice. Wow. Yeah. Something about, something about justice. 
Yeah, that's basically like like if I were to write a Batman story, it'd probably be called Batman. Something about justice. <laughs> and bats. <laughs> and bats. And yet he's afraid of bats. Wow. So two old men beat each other up. There are only three cops because everyone else is in the sewer. A uh, The smartest scientist in the world is able to build another hydrogen bomb. And once you hang Batman by his shoulders, he grows all his muscles and cartilage back. That's the yep. movie. That's the movie. What a movie. Thanks, Christopher Nolan. There's a lot in there about, about, I mean, I kind of left out the two female leads in the movie because they don't do a lot of science in it. Yeah. Um, which I will say, I think that Anne Hathaway is far and away the best part of that movie. Yeah. If you're a fan of Catwoman, I think it's a movie worth seeing. Anne Hathaway is great. Batman, eh. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how other people, um, I actually think I've heard other non-Batman fans comment on this movie and they're basically like, eh, it was okay. Yeah, it definitely did not get the reception that The Dark Knight got. Yeah, well, of course. Um, In any sense, no. So in terms of letter grades, we can say that uh, (laughs) all the cops falling into a sewer is uh, actually pretty low. (laughs) Like, like not that many cops can fall into a sewer. They they don't fall in the same manhole, do they? No, they don't fall. It's that there's something going on in the sewers that that the police commissioner is worried about. So he sends every available cop into the sewers to go flush out this like gang or something. Okay. Meanwhile, by the way, the commissioner is like in the hospital on morphine. So maybe he should have been removed from command. Of course. And so then when that happens, that was part of Bane's plot all along and they blow the entrances Uh, to the tunnels under Gotham. Okay. And they're all trapped under there. They send them food packages because I don't know, Bane's making a point or something. Right. And then, you know, using nuclear fusion for a bomb and, uh, you know, a neutron bomb in general gets a science grade of A. That's totally, totally legit. Um, the medical stuff about Batman, that's an F, I would say. Yes. Yeah, I because would agree. They, they give a they give a very straight up explanation of what's going on. They're hanging him from the ceiling by a rope. <laughs> so I, there's really no no flexibility on that. That's that's an F. Um, so, uh, yeah. Wow. We did it. We did it. <laughs> we assessed yeah, the movie. The, and then the deterioration would just make the bomb inert instead of explode. Right. Exactly. That, yeah. That's like a, it's like a C all, all in all the, the nuclear stuff, because like all the science is fine, but they kind of compl- conflate some stuff. All right. So we've we've put to bed the Christopher Nolan trilogy and I never need to watch The Dark Knight Rises ever again. That was fun, man. Yeah, it was fun for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> no, it, it was. It was you fun had to, to watch, watch. You had to watch that movie. You watched it a couple days ago, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. And, you know, I like, I've, I I enjoy watching much, much worse movies. Right. So, yeah. So it wasn't, you know, at the very least, it did have a little bit of Batman in it. Really quickly, can we talk a little bit about Bane's, um, like, suit and face thing? You said that it's feeding him painkillers? Yeah, they don't, they don't actually say that. That's sort of what I took away the first time I saw it. They're very vague about it. Mm-hmm. So simply that you know when they when I said there was one person who climbed out of the pit before Batman it was uh, it was Miranda Tate Talia Al Ghul mm-hmm. Marion Cotillard's character yeah and uh, and Bane was sort of like her caretaker in this whole prison right back in the day in this flashback scene he helped her out and people didn't like that so all the other prisoners beat the crap out of Bane mm. and the the line they use is that doctors the doctor's attempt to fix him left him in agony. And the mask helps hold the pain at bay. Oh, okay. So somebody tried to do surgery on him and they basically botched the surgery because it was prison surgery. 
And so now he has this mask. Seems like some pretty sophisticated prison surgery. That, that, that mask is a beast. You could, you know, kill, you could administer painkillers with an IV drip. Yeah, and it's it's odd because at the end, it looks like Batman, like, sort of tears some of the, rips some of the mask apart. Mm. And then Talia al Ghul sort of puts it together when she's taking care of the dying Bane at the end. Hmm. That sort of makes, that's what made me think it was painkillers because she's just sort of reconnecting things and he's starting to feel better. Hmm. So it's it's very vague what the mask does. Yeah. In the comics, Bane wears a mask, so they had to give him a mask. And cool. I guess they just they really used the whole monkey typewriter theory on that one. Yeah. This really makes me think about the balance between like again, you could have just had a bomb and you could have just had this guy had an IV drip, but it's cool to have, you know, a reactor turn into a bomb in such a way that you need a really intense scientist or like this guy needs a crazy mask to der- deliver the, you know, I, I think it actually is very cool if you can have something that's extravagant or uh, or sophisticated and actually necessary to do what the villain is trying to accomplish. You know what I mean? I do. And by the way, what the villain is t- trying to accomplish, the big bad is actually Talia, not Bane. Hmm. Bane's just doing the for Talia. Right, right. Talia is trying to accomplish what her father did in the first, was trying to accomplish in the first movie, which is just destroying Gotham. Yeah. So there's not necessarily any reason she shouldn't have just blown up Gotham in the beginning and been like, all right. Every time you're mentioning Talia, I'm thinking of the college humor video. It's so funny. (laughs) All right, let's do, uh, let's do science. Yeah, let's get off of that. All right, here's the science fact. The science fact of the day is... That microscopes have gotten good enough to see single molecules. Is that not what... I kind of thought that's what microscopic already meant. Oh, no. No, I mean, the first microscopes are just light microscopes. And, you know, you you have a, a light bulb underneath your stage, which is just, you know, a transparent platform where you put your uh, sample. And so you could have some anything, you know, some cells, some skin cells. You look through a couple lenses and you see... Uh, something that's small, but definitely not uh, a molecule. So if you see a cell, that's made of thousands, millions, billions of molecules. Okay, that's right. So yeah, microscopic means cellular, kind of cellular level, but not not atomic level. That's what we're talking about. Right. And right. in order to talk about sizes here, I want to use a little mnemonic that I always repeat to myself, which is millimicro nano. A thousandth of a millimeter is a micrometer. A thousandth of a micrometer is a nanometer. So millimicro nano... A nanometer is a millionth of a millimeter. And so when we talk about microscopy, you're looking at microscopic things. But when we talk about super resolution microscopy or the types of microscopy we're going to talk about today, um, microscopy, you know, is just another pronunciation from microscopy. So just microscopes, basically. When you're looking at something that small, you would call it nanoscale or nanometer sized. Because a molecule is usually anywhere from the smallest molecule is hydrogen, which is a tenth of a nanometer, to things that can be dozens to hundreds of nanometers. It's weird to think of things that small as in terms of measurement like that. Because yeah. when, when, when I conceptualize things like that, they don't actually occupy space in my mind. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like like a, a, a nanometer, that's that's essentially nothing, right? And so when my mind just makes it actually nothing, when I think about the space it occupies, yeah, that's interesting. But any amount of you know, and no matter how small something is, there's an amount of it that would make it noticeable. Yeah, there's a great uh, thing which that is I, what, you know stuff is. 
Yeah, there's a great thing that I retweeted recently that shows the relative size of different kinds of cells. And there are cells that are a fraction of a micrometer big to cells that are almost an entire millimeter big. Um, And once you get that small, I mean, those scales are that's like the difference in size between planets. I mean, it's many what you call orders of magnitude or multiples of 10 um, differences. So, you know, it's all very, very tiny to us, but the differences between them are actually massive. Now, when you're dealing with things at this scale, right, you obviously like it, it's it's incredibly small, but you have to sort of adjust your perspective because some things are bigger, some things are smaller. Why then do we still measure these things in one in in 2D, basically, right? You say that it's a nanometer. That's the size of it. Mm-hmm. But just because we're looking at it through a microscope doesn't mean that it's a two-dimensional object. No, I mean, when I say nanometer, that's actually a one-dimensional unit. So a square centimeter or um, a cubic centimeter, those are 2D and 3D. Uh, right, right, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, of course, we're definitely talking about three dimensions. And um, so usually, like, when I say nanometer sized, I usually am referring to, for example, the diameter. Okay. The diameter is now two-dimensional. Yeah, so when I said diameter, I actually also meant spheres. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. There we go, 3D. So let me talk about the different ways to image a single molecule. So the three techniques that I want to highlight are super-resolution microscopy, which is a type of light microscopy, atomic force microscopy, more specifically non-contact atomic force microscopy, and lastly, transmission electron microscopy. So the first one, super-resolution microscopy, which I mentioned is a type of light microscopy, is near and dear to my heart because my uh, roommate and friend Peter is in the lab of W.E. Murner at Stanford, who shared the Nobel Prize in 2014 for this very technique. And wow. Yeah, and so the, the thing that's really amazing about super-resolution microscopy is that a photon itself has a wavelength of hundreds of nanometers. And what that means is that if you have a single molecule emit light out and you detect it with a camera, the smallest spot you can observe is still going to be at least 100 nanometers big. So you're going to see a spot and that doesn't give you any detail about the molecule because it's much, much larger than it's the much molecule. bigger. Exactly. Yes. Um, the first molecule that was ever observed singly using light Um, Not in a microscope experiment, but in what's called a spectroscopy experiment, where you're just seeing the signal on a detector rather than in an image. That that experiment was done by W.E. Murner, and it was done on a molecule called pentacene that's about one nanometer big. So if you saw pentacene in an image, it would be one nanometer big, but it would give you a spot that's 100 nanometers big or larger. Now, the trick with super-resolution microscopy is that even though that spot is really big, you can really precisely find the center of it. And that would be then your atom. Your molecule. Yeah, where the, where molecule. the, where the molecule is, exactly. Um, that sounds really trivial, right? So people have been seeing molecules for, for decades. <laughs> like... not, not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but how I just explained it is like, every time you see a molecule, you see a spot. So what's the big deal? The big deal is... Two things. One, cutting out all of the light so that you're only seeing light from the particular type of molecule you want. And then the other thing is having so few molecules lighting up at a time that you're actually able to observe single ones because there are so many in a sample that you're going to see a bunch of overlapping signals. Right. So then you sort of are you essentially like sort of almost using the negative space from the light to 
measure your molecule? No, actually, you are looking at the light itself. You do see those spots. Right, but that's those spots are light, and then wouldn't then the absence of light be the molecule? Super resolution microscopy requires fluorescence. So it requires a molecule to actually be producing light itself. And so necessarily, this molecule called an emitter is at the center of a sphere of, of light that it's continually putting out. So actually, you can be sure that the light you're seeing from an emitter is coming from the molecule, the emitter itself, at the center of that ball of light. Well, right. But how do you basically I'm, I'm wondering, how do you how do you decide what part of the center, what width of the center, what the diameter is that is the molecule versus just the light it emits? Right. If you have a ball of light. Great question. Right. Not some of it is the emitted light and some of it is the molecule yeah. itself. How do you differentiate if all you see is light? Yeah, exactly. So. Basically, what you see is actually just a circle um, in your image, and the center of the circle is very bright, and the edges of the circle fade out until it fades out to nothing if you get far enough from the center. And so, Okay, so they just have different brightnesses, and that's how you differentiate. Exactly. So basically, inst- right. if instead of... Um, so essentially, simplifying quite a bit, if you take the brightest point in that spot, that is where the molecule is. And what the Murner Lab and other people have done is figuring out more and more precise and more and more accurate ways to tell exactly what you're asking. The center and so, what the uncertainty in where that center is. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. So you're saying that you said that the molecules require fluorescence, right? Yes. So they have to emit light for you to see that. Right. So isn't what you're doing... Just looking at them? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was the scientific <laughs> fact, yeah, is that we have microscopes that can look at single molecules. You're literally look, And that's that's why I like this. This um, That's what I, one of the things that I really like about this method compared to the other two is that you are actually doing the same thing that an eyeball does uh, and seeing a molecule. Okay, okay. And so this is, though, my, my knowledge of microscopes is that basically every, every one that's better than the last just has more and more intricate lenses. But obviously, that's probably an archaic way of thinking about it. What what changed, right? If it's if it's just that we're looking at something smaller, it's not it's not that we're using a different technique to look per se. We're not like uh, you great know question. making the the fluorescent on our own. Yeah. How how did we get how did, how did we breach that hurdle? Couple of things. That makes it more of an engineering question. Yeah, totally. Well, it, it's a it's a lot of different things. So one thing is that instead of using light bulbs to light up the samples, we're using um, lasers that produce coherent uh, monochromatic, meaning single color light. That's one thing. Another thing is blinking. So I talked about how you don't want to have molecules overlapping or their spots overlapping. One way to do this is to have those molecules emissions separated in time. So there are actually enzymes that can turn molecules on and off. There are, there are a couple ways you can do it. An enzyme is one way that turn molecules on and off at such a rate that you can sort of control the rate and make sure that only a couple of molecules are um, lighting up at one time. So that that's a biochemical part of the solution. So that's, Lasers that's are another. That's where it's not just building. That's where it's not just building a better microscope. Yeah, and you do need you okay. do need fancy lenses, and you do need fancy cameras. Of course. Uh, what what Peter, my my roommate, is working on is three D microscopy. So there are actually ways that instead of the spot looking like a circle, it can look like other kinds of shapes that change as the molecule gets closer and farther from the camera. So you ju- you get not only the two D space information, but you also get that third dimension how far and close it is yeah it seems like it would give you a lot more to sort of extrapolate the shape would sort of be able to tell you 
you know, certain midpoints and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And and the precision of that measurement, the precision of how near or far it is, is um, is what he works on. Very neat. Okay, so what are the other types? So you may have thought, okay, in the science fact, you said we can look at molecules, but really we're just looking at a spot. I mean, we know where the molecule is, that's fine, but like pictures of molecules, that's what we really want to see. And this is one of my favorite science facts because... It has a picture associated with it, and it's a picture that I love to show people, and we'll post it on our social media uh, this week. This is a picture from a paper in 2013 by the Fisher Lab at UC Berkeley, Go Bears. Scott, I'm an organic chemist, and you've seen me draw organic chemistry structures. There's a lot of, uh, you know, pentagons and hexagons, and a lot of people are familiar with these science-y hexagon images, right? Yes, absolutely. So... What this next technique? I have a T-shirt with uh, that you designed with one on them. Yes, that's exactly right. The old the, the, old the Burns, Burns Lab T-shirt. t-shirt. Um, Noah Burns uh, in the chemistry department here at Stanford, a, a fan of the pod and a friend of the pod. So in my work in the Burns Lab and in my work in other labs, I've dealt with organic molecules and and they have a lot of uh, pentagons and hexagons in them. And I think people look at these structures that you draw on paper and they they're skeptical that that's what the molecules really look like. This paper in 2013 from the Fisher Lab has AFM images, atomic force microscopy, which is what I'm about to talk about, that actually look like the structures. And there are four different ones, and they're very, they're very, you know, they're pretty complicated structures. And you can see in the images that they look almost exactly as they're drawn on paper. So you see that actually atomic detail. Man, that would have meant so much to me in my freshman science class. Totally. And in fact, in my first, uh, in the first chapter of my freshman chemistry textbook at the very end of the first chapter they show a different technique which i'm not going to talk about as much called scanning tunneling microscopy where they where they image single molecules and single atoms it's not as detailed as this what i'm about to talk about but reading that at the end of that chapter completely mystified me and was a bit uh, it was a big part of my journey toward being a chemist very cool Okay, so but so what is AFM then? How does it like how does it work? So I love AFM because it's so elegant and simple to understand. AFM What is what's the acronym again one more time? Atomic force microscopy. Atomic so, force microscopy. Yeah. Okay. And it's called atomic force microscopy because you're detecting force that the atoms are actually putting on uh, a little they call it a cantilever, but it's basically just a wand. Basically imagine a um a diving board on a swimming pool. And there's a, a tip, a sort of triangular tip attached to the bottom of the diving board. And that's all, you know, imagine a very, 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 very small version of that. And that's dragged across a sample. And so you see as the surface of the sample, the features in it, the bumps and, and features uh, apply fresher, <clears throat> apply pressure to the cantilever, to the triangular tip. It rises and that that force um from the rising can actually be detected by a very sensitive detector. And so you drag it across and then you drag it across right next to that. And you basically generate these rows of pixels by driving it across, by dragging it across. And you are able to generate an entire image. That sounds like basically how a needle on a record works. Exactly. That's exactly how it works. And the cool thing about NCAFM, so non-contact is that the tip itself actually isn't touching 
anything. So if you hover a tip very, very close to a sample, but not actually touching it, if the tip is made of the right stuff, then the sample will actually attract the arm, the cantilever, and you can detect that signal. And by doing that in some very clever ways, these scientists were able to make these images. That's very interesting. Almost like it reminds me of like a pickup on a guitar. Yeah. That doesn't doesn't touch the strings, but it picks up the sound when you play them. Yeah. Yeah. Similar. Um, in this particular case, it's a type of forces called Van der Waals forces, which I was blown away when I read that because Van der Waals forces are very weak. But the cantilever is so sensitive and its position is controlled so precisely that Van der Waals pulls um, are actually the signal you're getting. So the the weak forces basically make it more precise. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, those images will be again up on uh, up on social media. So check them out; they're absolutely gorgeous. And and I and I want to um, and I also want to give credit to the Gross Lab, which did this single molecule non contact AFM for the first time in a paper in Science in two thousand nine. And the crazy thing is the molecule they imaged with this technique is pentacene. It's the same molecule that WE imaged in, or not imaged, but got the spectrum of in 1989. Total coincidence. How about that? Yeah. By the way, those socials are at Cyanfic on whatever social media you want to find cool science images on. Yeah. All right. Takes to number three. Number three is transmission electron microscopy so these are some more images that i'm going to put out my friend uh, lisa at berkeley go bears again is studying cryo tem which is cryogenic transmission electron microscopy and this is a technique that actually which won the nobel prize in chemistry in 2017 and this is kind of cheating because uh, it's actually somewhere in the middle so you don't get the atomic level um detail of non-contact AFM, but you do get more detail than the specific location of a spot. So you actually get to see pretty big molecules like proteins, molecules that are dozens to maybe hundreds of, of nanometers in size. How TEM works is basically it's just like a light microscope where you have, instead of a light beam, you have an electron beam where electrons are going through the sample and coming uh, into a detector and there is contrast um, just like with a light sample, there's there's absorbance of the electrons. And so what you see on the other end is an image of your sample. And the reason that it won the Nobel Prize is because you can see whole structures of proteins in three dimensions. This is something non-contact AFM can't do. So I told you there are, there are um, pentagons and hexagons, but these molecules are conveniently, the atoms are arranged in a, in a flat arrangement. So they're lying on a surface in a flat way. Cryo-TEM can let you image molecules with atomic detail in three dimensions. Okay, so that's that's its benefit is it's got the 3D thing. So wait, so so do you do or do you not get atomic resolution? Because you kind of said both. Oh, right. So in a single cryo-TEM image, you don't get the beautiful kind of atomic resolution. Uh, you don't get the beautiful kind of atomic detail that you get with NCAFM. But if you take a thousand images of the same molecule and the molecule is in different orientations and then you use some fancy computation and averaging, then you can construct a 3D image and you know where all the atoms are. But the images themselves aren't as beautiful. So it is both, basically. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So when it comes to to extrapolating methodology of science to sci-fi, it's a little more difficult because... 
because what what sort of happens often with new technology like this is that it just gets you closer to sci-fi. Hmm. You know what I mean? But yeah. we've got characters like Ant-Man and the Atom who can literally go to these microscopic levels right. and and inevitably find cultures of people living there that look a lot like humans. Mm-hmm. Always happens in the microverse, the miniverse, the teeniverse, or whatever you want to call yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Another uh, another Rick and Morty episode there. Great yeah. one. Yeah. Um, it's, it's in both the DC and Marvel universes, I believe, it's the microverse. Okay. Um, so that's the one, like, in the Ant-Man movies, the one that they, uh, lost Michelle Pfeiffer in, that was the microverse, even though they never actually name it, I think. Michelle Pfeiffer was in Ant-Man? She was in Ant-Man and the Wasp. She was the uh. original Wasp that Michael Douglas lost. In Ant-Man, you never saw her face, and they caught cast her for the second movie. Got it. Yeah. Um, so, so what, what this kind of allows... Is, is is mostly for a new level of accuracy when it comes to that. And so, like, what I would think if I were – if I heard about this while I were working on an Adam or an Ant-Man book, I would try to track down some of these images you're talking about and work with, you know, whatever artist is – mm. or if for, for a TV show or movie, whatever, you know, the production designer is when they're con- considering constructing – the microscopic universe, I would begin with these images. Hmm, you know, interesting. These, the, the various shapes, colors, light or lack thereof would be the architecture or, you know, that, that would be the basis of the architecture for the microverse, you know? Yeah. Um, like, for example, and, and there, there's a lot to be said about what you can communicate with buildings. In uh, Grant Morrison's Wonder Woman Earth 1, he constructed uh, his artist Yannick Paquette, who is brilliant, um not to have really any phallic structures. Huh. Because in when when building Themyscira, um Paradise Island because it's an island built and designed by women. Right. So so there's a lot there's a lot more, you know, more feminine shapes and hmm. and even as as he describes it a a vaginal looking invisible jet. That wow. she flies. Yeah. That Interesting. Looks, it, it but if it's invisible, like, <laughs> why include that well, detail? It can turn invisible. Uh, it, okay, it okay. kind of looks like a clamshell almost. Yeah, got it. Um, it's that's, very that's graphic, it's, dude. <laughs> well, I mean, it is what it, it is. is. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the real, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, you didn't write it. You know, so is the Washington Monument, but nobody censors it. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you yeah. know, then that's, and that's sort of the point of, of, of the architecture in that book is to sort of sort of highlight the phallic nature of architecture in our right world. right of course and so then yeah that would go into building the microverse it needs to look a certain way and as we get more and more of an accurate look on what these on what molecules actually look like that should now inform our sci-fi going forward you know this is actually really interesting because as i'm imagining you know your teeny verse that has more accurate images taken from microscopy in it to sort of inform what the universe is supposed to look like you couldn't really have to me at least a human or a human-like character there because the human would be made of the same atoms that they're hanging out with and that's exactly part of i guess what i mean that's that's part of the the sci-fi problem is that yeah yeah in in the microverse we basically learn that the microverse has its own molecular structure that's even smaller yeah yeah that's interesting and also like why not you know why not break we talked about this shrinking stuff in episode five 
why not just break those fundamental laws of physics and just have a small human, well, they couldn't breathe, but I guess you could have a small, you know, oxygen tank just in space between floating, you know, molecules that are much bigger than the molecules in their own body. Um, it would be... It'd be an interesting uh, comic book panel. Yeah, that might be that one might be a, a very sort of surreal way of looking at it. You know, um, yeah. there's the 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 king of comics, Jack Kirby. Whenever, um, not every time, but often when he would have characters go into these sort of other dimensional, otherworldly places or travel from like one dimension to another, mm-hmm. um, happened a lot in books like Fantastic Four and Thor, and of course all of his crazy New God Superman stuff. He would he would do these collages. And and I'll throw some up on our socials this week uh, that that it wouldn't look like comic book art at all, but mm-hmm. the characters would look like comic book art. And so there would be these insane collages and some would be like newspaper printings and flowers and stuff. Mm. And 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 yet this total comic book style Thor just flying across it that looked super surreal and really made you feel like – like this, you know, you can you can draw a lot of crazy things, but it can you see a lot of crazy things in a comic book. And this really feels otherworldly for a thing that already feels otherworldly. And and so you can sort of combine that with accuracy with hmm. with, with when, whenever we come up with new technology, you know, like one of one of the things that that always bugs me in any movie is when a gas tank gets shot and it explodes. Like, we right. learned so long ago, that's not a thing anymore, yeah. you know? That's yeah. not how it works. Everybody's seen that Mythbusters by now, Yeah, and yet it's still a trope. Yeah, and, actually, and what, a, what, a, what a gas tank would do if you shot it is it would shoot like a missile out of whatever it's in. Because it's the compressed. Gas would, yeah. Yeah, it will. And the, the tank would be propelled by the gas shooting out of it. And this is actually a thing when they're training us in the lab to deal with uh, compressed gas cylinders, they're like, be careful because if you open this wrong, it will literally rocket through the floor. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah. That's why they give you the white jackets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So like that's, I think that in, in cases like this, and of course sci-fi writers and artists can't, I don't think should be expected to keep up with all modern science because not a lot of them can. I know I personally can't. That's why I got you. (laughs) Um, But there's something to say about as science goes forward, as we learn more, uh, certain tropes need to be retired, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, and this happens culturally too. Absolutely. Certain, you know, particularly when it comes to romance, a lot of tropes have had to be retired um, because they perpetuate a lot of harmful, uh, gender roles and stereotypes and yeah. whatnot. You yeah. know, in comedy a lot of tropes have had to be retired of course. because they're really harmful. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And and while with science it may not be as harmful as with a lot of uh, cultural ones, mm-hmm. certain tropes might be retired just because they don't land anymore because everybody watching knows, well that's not that's not how that works. And I don't think microscopy is there or ever will get there. I don't think the general <laughs> microscopy public... is not very problematic, I would say. Yeah, I don't, th- I don't think people are gonna be like, well, I don't know about that Ant Man movie. It wasn't that yeah. believable. Yeah. You know, and or at the very least they're gonna be more bothered by the whole everything maintains its mass and yet I can carry this tank on my keychain than they're gonna be bothered by the way yeah. the microverse looks. <laughs> yeah. I did come up with an idea why while while we were talking about this that's related to what we talked about in episode five. We were talking about shrinking and maybe about about brains and consciousness and maybe shrinking to something that doesn't have a consciousness as complicated as a human, but can do some sort of job and then knows to like, you know, press a little button to grow back up. 
and then you're right. like, oh, okay. Instinct, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, I, and I was wondering if you could even extrapolate that down to um, the nanoscale and have what's called molecular machines. Have you heard of molecular machines? Yeah, I mean, the term nanotech has been thrown around in sci-fi as long as I've been consuming it. So nanotech and nanomedicine is separate from molecular machines. Nanotech is basically using nanoparticles of any kind that are usually spherical and are usually on the scale of 50 to hundreds of nanometers. And they can be used. Actually, this is this is a a science fact that I was considering bringing up in a later episode. Some cancer drug formulations that have been approved are actually drugs encapsulated inside nanoparticles. And so you'd get an injection of chemo and you wouldn't realize it. But instead of just a solution of drug molecules, it's actually a suspension of millions of nano sized uh, nanocapsules. Interesting. What molecular machines are, they won the Nobel Prize in 2016 are actually made up of small molecules, and they're often smaller than 50 nanometers. And you synthesize them like small molecules, where you have a trillion trillion copies of your small molecule. But instead of a trillion trillion copies of some molecule that exists on on its own, you can synthesize a trillion trillion copies of a loop around a rod that's blocked off at both ends so the loop doesn't escape and various reactions that you can conduct change where the loop goes and what i'm getting at is you can do you can synthesize molecular machines that do what real machines do which is translate energy into motion so you can have a loop driving around a circular ring by burning chemical energy that that sounds really interesting. That sort of takes like w- combining that with our with our idea of making making the microverse more accurate. Mm-hmm. I could see I could see a story where a character, you know, both Ant the, the OG Ant Man Hank Pym and the the Adam uh, kind of all the Adams uh, Ray Palmer Ryan Choi are scientists, mm-hmm. and so they might know these kinds of things. And I could see one getting stuck in the microverse, and instead of there being a culture of people. There are these, you know, they create these simple molecular machines to basically develop some sort of society. I mean, not society, but at the very least, shelter and, you know, some way of getting resources um, so that they can survive. Um, the, the sort of manipulable nature of a lot of these things is really interesting. And that sounds like it has a lot of potential for somebody who both knows how to do that and can become that size. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it could be both. It could be a scientist who designs the machine, synthesizes it, and then shrinks down to use it. Um, And it could also be sort of you know, what if what if uh, a super advanced scientist could synthesize a machine that's so complicated that it's actually basically a sentient robot and that you could shrink down into it and do something and then grow back up, just like we talked about with a bug. But instead of shrinking down to being a bug, you're becoming a molecular machine. That's a little out there, but I don't think it's cool. I mean, I don't, a little out there is, is, is what we're here for. So, <laughs> exactly. so I like it. Yeah. I also will just shout out to when I heard that this had won the Nobel Prize, at first I was like, I don't really know what this is about. This kind of a fringe area of organic chemistry. And I recently watched uh, Fraser Stoddart's Nobel lecture. And for any synthetic chemist out there, it's just incredible that they're able to synthesize these things. It's so impressive. Um, I had a newfound, I had a newfound appreciation for it. So we'll put that up on the on the social media as well. Cool, very cool. Lots of shout outs, lots of Nobel prizes in this episode. 
Yeah, quite a few. We have uh, Cryo TEM, uh, Super Resolution Microscopy, and Molecular Machines. Good, good stuff. Very cool. Well, with three types of microscopy and all kinds of ways to complain about Batman, we've probably got a pretty bloated episode, so we should probably get out of here by now. Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to Science and Fiction. Once again, I'm your co-host, Stephen Shukin. As always, Science and Fiction can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. Follow us on all social media, at SciAndFic, and email us at scienceandfictionpod at gmail.com. That's all one word. Feel free to message us with any questions or suggestions, or if you want to learn more about anything we discussed today. And I am also your co-host, Scott Shukin. This episode was recorded in Palo Alto, California and Bellingham, Washington. Theme music by Mark Torch via Epidemic Sound. Come back next week for more of The Possible and Impossible. It's just two decrepit old men (laughs) breaking each other's backs. That's exactly (laughs) what it is. (laughs) That is exactly what it is while Anne Hathaway and Marion Cotillard fight over which one of them gets to bang Batman. Well, I do love Anne Hathaway. Spoiler alert, it's both. (laughs) (laughs) 